3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming. We're doing things a bit differently on the show today as we say goodbye to 2021. Today we're going to take a look at some of our favourite stories, voices and guests from the last year. So stay tuned and let's get into it. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming. In 2021, the Thursday Breakfast crew conducted a series of interviews tracing the role of the arts in the gentrification and cultural history of Collingwood and Fitzroy. This was part of a collaborative project, Disorganizing, coordinated by Liquid Architecture, Bus Projects, and West Space. In our interviews, you'll hear from local activists, artists, urban planners, and historians, including Kucha Edwards, John Harding, Pora Bibi and Izzy Brown, Kelly and Spike, Libby Porter, Dr. Kate Shaw, and Karen Cummings. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, and streaming at 3cr.org.au. This is a conversation that Priya and I have with Spike and Kelly, two long-term housing activists and broadcasters on 3CR. We speak about the Homeless Persons Union, the 2016 Bendigo Street housing occupations, and reflections on hosting the 3CR Rumination Show. Spike, did you want to kick us off and um, yeah, maybe introduce yourself for listeners? I've had I had a long-term lived experience of homelessness. I've had I have an AOD background. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm now working, uh, and so I've been active maybe politically. So organising like the the HPU was part of a big part of my life at one stage, um, and I did some training in Collingwood actually at the at the, the council to homeless persons. So it's sort of relevant, yeah. So I did some training as a peer, as a peer educator, and and I've been working um, as an outreach uh, peer worker at CoHealth the last four years. So yeah, my interest is, comes from a lived experience. It comes from uh, using that space as a young person, going to see bands in Collingwood, because I'm also, you know, like music was a big part of my life. Um, and, there, and there's always meetings in that part of town. You know, there was always meetings. The, squat, the, the, the squatters, Information service used to be in that like at the old uh, at the old fire station. So yeah, there was a big part of 
everyone's life, I guess. Yeah, hello. Um, my name's uh, Kelly, uh, Kelly Whitworth, and um, yeah, I've been a volunteer broadcaster at um, 3CR uh, for about eight years. Um, both Spike and I used to um, do a show called Ruminations for a number of years, which, is, which was a peer homelessness program. Um, and yeah, I currently work on a couple of other shows behind the scenes. And um, yeah, along with Spike, we formed the Homeless Persons Union um, in, I think, about 2014, I think it was. And um, it was really Spike's love child, really, um, based on his... <laughs> based on his... Um, Based on his, um, you know, long-standing homeless experience and um, coming to, you know, a sort of thinking that there should be a, um, a union, you know, for people that are homeless. Um, so that's how that all took off. And um, then a year or two into our existence, we um, started up the, um, the Bendigo Street um, campaign. Yeah, I guess, like, both of you can sort of feed into this, but could you tell us a bit about the development of the Homeless Persons Union and like what what it means to organise in that way, to organise under the name of a union when you're doing this kind of work? So what became really clear from, uh, from getting a little bit of training through the Council of the Homeless Persons was that the whole space, the discussion around homelessness is dominated by people who work in the sector, by academics, yeah, like people who were having a lived experience weren't having their voice voices heard. It was it wasn't part of the discussion, and so what became really clear was like going and speaking to councils and and like because our job at the time was to speak to council workers about what it was like because for, for people that work in in um, nine to five jobs, for example, like I've spoken to people that work for the city of Melbourne and. and you know, they, they, they didn't sign up to be... so. You know, for, for better or for worse, no matter what we think of how the city responds to homelessness, the people that are, are working there as in, that work in the parks division, they really didn't sign up to be social workers. It became really important that... Um, the, so this peer education um, program was um, sort of getting people with the lived experience to talk about to these workers, to these council workers or doctors or whoever it was, so this is who I am, this is what happened to me. Um, so, and I thought the union, I, at the time, this is what I thought, because, well, you know, workers, you know, builders, my old man was in the union, he was builders, you know, he was like, you know, he, he was a builder's labourer. Um, I thought, to me, where my head, where I thought that was uh, be a space where we could, Make you know, like collectively represent what's happening to folks, you know, on the street. Mm. Um, and at the time, that you know, the, uh, the trades hall were really supportive, and and they gave us a space to meet, and and it was really active in terms of trying to raise awareness of homelessness. You know, we we slept on the steps of Parliament a couple of times, and it was really it was a really festive. It was a really good thing. Um, it just, I think, you know, organising, organising is a really, uh, it's a nourishing 
it can really it can be, it can be an incredibly uh, nutritious thing, yeah. It's because you, you you're working with people towards a common goal, um, and you're accessing resources and you're getting shit together. And so when it comes off, it's, it's a fantastic thing. And so that sort of street-based um, organising is incredible. It's an incredible thing. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it become, when it becomes service provision, though, so when, and then so when, when, Kelly, when Kelly, a friend of Kelly's was squatting in one of the houses on Bendigo Street that was that was bought for the East-West thing. I mean, Kelly can speak to this. And then people just were so pissed that this empty house was not being used. And, Kelly, you can speak to this better than I can. But, you know, and so that's where the HPU got sort of... The the profile of the the HPU became more public, I guess, because Mm -hmm. of its involvement. Because the other stuff was around more... about more day-to-day stuff, you know, like toilets, showers... Um, people getting breakfast. Um, you know, we were talking to people at, at drop-in centres that you know didn't have teeth, and we you know we, we tried to make phone calls because they wanted dentures. It was more. It was a different. It was a different thing. Yeah. The Bendigo Street elevated it to something else. To, to, yeah. So um, back in um, yeah early 2016. Um, Friends of friends, we found out that they um, they were homeless, a group of young women, and they remembered some article in the paper about this ghost street in Collingwood. Anyway, they went um, down to Bendigo Street and they discovered there was about, oh, I can't recall exactly, but maybe eight to ten um, um, beautiful empty houses just sitting there empty. And um, the reason they were empty was because, you know, previously the, the Liberal government were going to create this East-West Link bypass um, on, on that street. And so all the people that had lived there for years, they, their houses were compulsorily acquired by the state government and they had to move out. And um, and then the, um, the Andrews Labor government um, got into power with a promise not to go ahead um, building the east-west link it was quite controversial it cost a lot of money and um yeah so all these houses were left empty and um for about 18 months i'd say and um the salvation army were gifted a number Mm. of them to that's right um, to um house homeless people and um yeah six months later when our friends were squatting there um no no nobody that was homeless had been housed there and we were just, you know, really just pissed off about it, basically, and mm-hmm. we wanted to draw attention to the fact that they were all sitting there empty and why the hell hadn't anybody been housed? You know, we knew at the time there was, like, 35,000 people on the public housing waiting list and, you know, thousands of thousands of people experiencing homelessness, not just homelessness that you see on the street, but, you know, people in their cars, people on um, friends' couches, in rooming houses and all kinds of insecure accommodation. So... um we never expected it to be an eight-month occupation. There's no way in hell we expected that. We just expected to rock up there one day and bring attention to the issue, get the media involved, and it just snowballed into this thing where we were there for eight months. Yeah, that turned into a real beast. That was incredible, um, you know, direct action there, occupying the space, but also drawing attention to the fact that there are these, there are so many, you know, properties that have been acquired by the government for various developments that are sitting empty that, you know, people could be in. Yeah, 
Can I just say quickly, mm-hmm. that, that year, in 20, I think it was 2016, I believe, that they did a street count in the city of Melbourne. There were 260, they counted, they said, rough sleepers. So while there were eight empty houses that we're, you know, like we're clearly aware of on that street in Melbourne, in Collingwood, there were 200-odd people sleeping rough in the city of Melbourne. It's not like they don't have this information, right? They're just choosing not yeah. to use it. And I mean, in terms of, um, Kelly, you mentioned raising media awareness um, about the issue. Uh, I was wondering if maybe both of you could speak to the Rumination Show and how um, how the Rumination Show kind of relates to the work that you were doing in terms of organizing at Bendigo Street. Well, I think it was really, I think Ruminations is really important for us to be able to reach a, 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 a wider group of people. I think ruminations was a perfect because it was a, it was directly about uh, you know homelessness. Um, it just it just it enabled us to have a platform actually, and so I think it was without you know we did a show we did a show from the occupation we did <laughs> we did a few shows from from Bendigo Street and so without. I mean, we, we got, Kelly, you, you were like, people were donating furniture. That was, that was really special, actually. That part of it, there's parts of it were incredible. They really were. It, it really was, um, it worked for, 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 yeah, almost six, eight months. It just, it just got, it just got too hard. Mm. It got too hard. And, yeah, Kelly, could you share some moments that really stood out for you? during the demonstrations. And oh, I know that some of the houses actually, you know, people did squat in them for a little while. So do you want to speak about any of the successes? Yeah, well, initially we started off in one house and then we hopped to the house next door overnight. And and in the beginning, we weren't really sure what the landscape was. We weren't sure, like, there was all these different parties involved. There was a the state government and they had given management of the houses to different mobs like real estate agents yeah, and one was some church right. and so initially yeah. it was a, a bit of a fact-finding mission just to find out like um, in a legislative way who owned what or who was managing yeah. what and we didn't want it to implode quickly so we were quite reluctant to start occupying other houses but we set up base in one of them and it was like, like the political hub where everybody came. We held events, film nights, and, um, you know, one night we had probably 100 people all packed into the house and out on the street, and it was really quite powerful, and we really all got a feeling that something important was yes. um, happening in Melbourne at that time because, you know, just the reality of rising housing prices and all that was just getting to the average person. And um, so I, over the course of a couple of weeks... Um, more houses um, um, became occupied and a whole bunch of di- different people occupied them and um, some Indigenous mob um, occupied some of them and it was the first time they'd had housing ever in their lives. And, um, you know, Arnie Ange, um, a good friend of ours, you know, had found out about the occupation through um, her cousin on the, on the street. She was sleeping at Spencer Street Station and she had been, you know, fleeing family violence. So... She came down and she was able to, you know, occupy a house that was pretty dilapidated, but it was a safe place for her to be. And she was able to have her grandchildren come and visit her, and 
That's, that's so that's, beautiful, Kelly. That's so beautiful. That, that's so true. That's yeah. True. And just want um, Auntie Angela's story is just one of the amazing things that came out of it because um, she ended up, because of the occupation and all the work that people did, she was able to get some public housing out of it, you know, and and it was that way for a number of people, some um, 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 single women and um, families and um, stolen generation mob, um, they were to get, able to get, um, you know, long-term secure public housing out of it. So that's probably, I would say, personally, and Spike will probably agree, I won't speak for him, but that's probably the, most, the best thing that came out of it, yeah. really, was that people got homes, not on, on Bendigo Street, I just want to touch on something that you both mentioned where you said that some of the houses were then given to, was it the Salvation Army? Yeah. Like Collingwood, the Collingwood Magpies Nest. Um, Yes, that's right. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, also note that Charcoal Lane, which was where the um, Aboriginal Victorian Health Service used to be, um, is now run by Mission Australia and it's a restaurant. So I think we see this occurring quite a lot, right, where there used to be community-controlled organisations or there's these, you know, grassroots um, activist collectives that, you know, make known these public spaces um, or spaces for public use and then they are co-opted and taken over by not-for-profits. Yeah. It's like it's hard, it's hard to know what to say because there's people that are working there right now. Like, I hear what you're saying. And it's, and, it's, and it's so true. It's like what you were saying earlier on about, um, you know, people in the, like this disconnect between, you know, the professional workers in the NGO sector yeah. um, versus people who actually have lived experience um, that are advocating for themselves and just, yeah, a disconnect between um, service provision and then the actual needs and also dignity and desires of people. Yeah, there's, so there's a way of making that work. Okay, there's a way, so there's a whole, there's like community development theory is, is that's what that's about. So if there, if there are people, and, and this has worked in different communities throughout Australia, um, you know, in the suburbs, whatever, you know, there, there's a way of making that work, but the people who actually use, who actually who inhabit the space, who actually live in the area need to be involved. You know, and as I was saying, as maybe you were alluding to, so the people that are living in the rooming houses, the people that use the local services, the people that go to the doctors there, the people that drink on the footpath, the people that drink in, you know, like the people who use that space, they're not getting access to that to those decision-making, those processes, because right now there's like a, another, like, like as, as you point out, the NGO, and, and, and some of these people might be well-intentioned, I'm not suggesting that all they're all bad people, but that's the way capitalism sort of works. It, it, it morphs, it, it creates another way of of um, of the grassroots, and and right now it's taking the guise of the not-for-profit. Yeah, and it it operates under the assumption that people that are on the streets are not a part of the community, even though obviously that's not true. Or they need to be managed. Somehow manage mm-hmm. that, that that there's risk involved. Um, that's that's what they. That, that's my feeling is that that's, that 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 people that they believe that they yeah. It's, it's a very it is very much an us and them situation. Mm. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm actually really interested in hearing a bit more about how the space was used creatively. You know, in one of the um, houses, Uncle Robbie created um, um, an Indigenous embassy there. Yeah. And, um, you know, Spike participated in a a bit of a um, ceremony there. Um, Could you speak to that, Spike? So, yeah, Robbie was was generous enough to... He he signed over... um, the lease to the two houses. One of the one of the houses we were in, um, the HPU was in, and um, also Easy's house. And it was actually, uh, yeah, that was probably the most me- meaningful thing we did. Like, not like I mean, of course, the people getting housed is important, but in terms of addressing that 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 area, that part of um, our culture, I thought that was. That was an incredibly powerful, powerful afternoon or morning. I just I can't remember, but it was, yeah. 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 I mean, it really is this sort of attention to, um, you know, the political questions around Indigenous sovereignty that never get raised in, um, you know, these big development spaces or really just get glossed over with, um, you know, like a written acknowledgement of country on someone's website rather than actually sitting down and having conversations about whose land it is and what it means to, um, you know, to occupy that land. Yeah, I think I think that that's one of the most um, that would be one of, another one of the of the enduring um, aspects of Bendigo Street. That I think that was the first. I like I, the first the first action that I've been a part of where um, the people involved in the action came to terms with that reality that we were on stolen land and that these things are connected. Because I think that there could have been there could have been another way to go to say, well, hang on, how's this directly related to homelessness? What what I think by by talking about homelessness and how it impacts people that are being dispossessed, it's a broader narrative of how how these things are connected. And so, in in a really, I I don't know if we were aware of it at the time, but. Especially on reflection now, I can really see the the, the, the power in that because you know the, the the way the media and this is one thing that 3CR is able to do that's different from mainstream media is that is it's able to to to, to communicate a consistent message or, or, or a view on, on something, whereas um, I, I feel like the mainstream media it's it's it's, it's chopped up and and. Your reality, what you're seeing on TV and on reading in the newspapers, does it does it marry with your reality? Yeah. Does that make any sense at all? Absolutely. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. thinking about how, you know, like the state government and also not for profits, they really do get to hide behind a lot of policies and a lot of managers. But when you're you know, organising at a very grassroots level and you're working directly with people and, you know, you also have friendships with people as well, there's a certain responsibility that you have um, for people's, 
well-being and safety and humanity. And, yeah, unfortunately, the government and also a lot of not-for-profits um, don't have that same sense of responsibility towards people. Yeah, well, we were, we were the ones that ended up, you know, doing the job of the politicians and the services, yeah. really. I mean, we didn't. We got pretty much zero support from any of the established, you know, homelessness and housing NGOs. They didn't want a bar of it. They wouldn't come near it. It was too radical, you know, for them being government-funded and everything. And um, so, yeah, we didn't have any support from anybody, really. Yeah, apart from the crew at the grassroots, but... um. And as for the government, you know, within a, within a few days of occupation, we 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 put out a uh, set of like five demands, and one of them, um, you know, apart from turning all those empty houses into genuine public housing, one of them was to actually get the minister for um, health and homelessness at the time, Martin Foley, to actually come down and sit down with people, you know, with a lived experience to hear um, who they were and what their, you know concerns were and what their dreams for their future were and you know just to, we didn't ever expect it to happen but in an ideal world that's really what should have happened and um yeah instead they just ran a mile from it um until it was it was too much of a hot you know hot topic for them and but yeah because we were there for so long and we did get so much support from other um people eventually they had to do something and they had to acquiesce and in the end they had to um give a certain amount of people some um public housing out of it so mm. so that, yeah. that's, that's exactly and so in the end what what was set up was afternoons at the at collingwood town hall where um people that lived on the street that were actually living on the street were able to apply for you know did have their um vhr done and stuff like that yeah and so that was done through, I think that was Co-Health, is that right, Kelly? Um, yeah, Co-Health were part yeah. of it and um, some uh, another lady, a good ally from um, Yarra Council. Um, That's right, yeah. Helped to give that kind of legitimacy, that process. So people went there, they had sit-down mm. meetings and put in their public housing application. And yeah. some people had public housing within like 48 hours. It oh, my goodness. Astounding, yeah. That's incredible. The houses are there. They just choose yeah. to deny right. them to people. That was the point, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. The crisis is a confected crisis. Be under no, have, make no mistake of what's happening here with, with housing in this country. Uh, this, is, if this isn't grandstanding. No shit. This is a confected crisis. Um, I think it would be, it would be great to, um, to sort of wrap up, to come back around to thinking about radio production and, um, yeah, community radio um, and the relationship that the Ruminations show, but also other programs that you've been involved with have, have had with the community and, and amplifying the, the voices that we've talked about get left behind. Well, Ruminations gave people purpose. Ruminations was, uh, was a space where you could be yourself and talk about your experience, you know, Things that happened to you that were important to you, it was meaningful. People supported each other in that space. Ruminations was, was where I, got, I was able to contribute to something that I, you know, that, that was communal, that was real, that was really, it was really important. Um, I, I think 
the, the, the relationships you build in those sort of spaces like 3CR um, in inner Melbourne in general, um, it was an oasis for that. You know, it's like, it, it, it doesn't come natural to everybody to want to, to, to get on radio and, and, and talk about what it was like for them. Um, and so it's, it really is, it is a special space because people did feel safe. I did. And so, yeah, I, I can't, I couldn't, rumination was really important to that. And 3CR, that, mm. that was part of, yeah. Yeah, well, let's face it. I mean, I've been reflecting on this a little bit lately, especially over the past, you know, um, time that we've been through with, with COVID, the pandemic, and not being able to, um, you know, come to 3CR and, and um, see all the people that I, you know, love and know and to interact um, with the community there um, and just, you know, spending a lot of time at home with COVID and maybe just listening to a few other radio stations and really realising the, the importance of 3CR and the niche role that it plays in our media landscape, you know, in this city, in this state, in this country, because I think it's like, you know, like the home of real radio in Melbourne, you know, like you listen to... Um, you know, some commercial stations and it's just all advertising and it's like they're on steroids, you know, <laughs> and, um, or, you know, I know, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, I really love the other community uh, radio stations where I listen to a lot of great music, but 3CR is important because it, it's about, you know, human stories and um, real-life stories and um, important issues that affect people on a day-to-day level in the community and, you know, through the whole Bendigo Street um, occupation, you know, we we did our, um, the Rumination Show, we did our um, radio song live <laughs> cool. from, one of, from one of the driveways of one of the houses we were occupying. That's just like, you know, the spunky, like, beauty of 3CR that, the te- yeah. you know, the volunteer technicians could come down there and set up yeah. everything that was needed to do a live broadcast you know, in the rain <laughs> yeah. for Radiothon 2016 yeah. and be able to pass the mic around, you know, to people that were there at the time and getting their voice on radio and their experience and their messages heard. And even Uncle uh, Robbie and Aunty Viv, they did a couple of um, sovereignty breakfast uh, broadcasts from there and Joseph Toscano for um, Anarchist World This Week um, did a couple of broadcasts there. So... 3CR played a huge part in us uh, being able to, you know, get our message out. And they're just uh, a a fundamental and so important part of the local um, community there. Just amazing. Yeah. I just wanted to thank you both so much for for taking the time to speak with us um, about your experiences organizing at Bendigo Street and also about broadcasting at 3CR and also your lived experiences and, you know, what they bring to this type of organizing and also communicating about these issues. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
We are going to play a track from Kutcher Edwards' album called Circling Time, and this is one of my favourites of the album called The More Things Change.
You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast summer programming and just then you heard the track The More Things Change from Kutcher Edwards' new album Circling Time. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR Community Radio. Over summer, we'll be here with Radical Radio, including documentaries, special series, highlights from 2021, and much more. For summer grid details, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And up next, we're speaking with Eunice Andrada. Eunice is a poet and educator. Her first poetry collection, Flood Damages, won the Anne Elder Award. She was born and raised in the Philippines and currently lives and writes on unceded Gadigal land. And she's joining us today to discuss her new collection, Take Care, which has just been published by Giramondo Publishing. And just before we begin this conversation, as listeners, please be advised that this collection of poems has themes of sexual violence and colonial violence, which listeners may find confronting. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eunice. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Rosie, and hi, everyone at home. <laughs> it's such a pleasure to have you. Um, I received your book about three days ago, and I've just been, it's been sunny down here in Nam and been reading in the sun, and it's been, yeah, a really special experience. But I was wanting to begin by asking you to talk about the title of the collection, which is Take Care. And when I read that first, you know, care often is associated with, you know, gentleness or softness, but um, it also reads as a kind of warning that these poems, um, as you say in your author's note, explore the role of rape culture in the machinery of imperialism. And it recalls as well like a farewell, um, as if someone is about to leave or go away for a time. So I was wondering what you were thinking about in the title. Yeah, thank you so much for all of those observations. I think um, with the poems in this collection, I've tried to bring those to the surface. Um, so the collection opens with the epigraph, which is a line from Diane's poem. Um, and the epigraph reads, The only way to know tenderness is to dismantle it. And through the writing of these poems, that's what I've really tried to do, to unpack the idea of care and to trouble that, that saying, take care. I wanted to ask the questions, you know, who gives care, who takes it, and at what cost? Um, I was also really thinking about um, the act of care as labor, particularly as a woman, particularly as a Filipino woman. What does our labor of care mean to ourselves, to our families, to our communities, as well as to the rest of the world? How is our care exploited in these global industries? in the poems, I particularly focus on the care of Filipino women in different parts of the world. Um, and I wanted to sort of humanize that labor because it is often seen as expendable and that, um, you know, Filipino bodies, Filipino women are transformed into these bodies in service, um, in the service of care, in hospitals, in, in domestic, um, in, in nursing uh, agencies, nursing homes. Um, but I wanted to just humanize all of those Filipino women who do that, who care for a living, um, not for themselves, but for other people. Mm. So um, there are all dimensions in the collection. Um, but I also wanted to just trouble uh, what it means to take care, particularly now, um, as we're all living in different um, stages of lockdown restrictions, because take care is said so effortlessly. Um, and as you said, take care is also a goodbye. 
um, particularly in Filipino culture, um, instead of saying paalam, which is a more formal way of saying goodbye, people say ingat, which means take care. Um, and it's often said as um, as our loved ones go overseas to work and we don't see them for a very long time, um, ingat, or take care, is said as a goodbye. Um, I also wanted to to dive into those dimensions where take care is said to women, particularly at night, you know, that we need to take care of ourselves or X, Y, Z will happen to us. And when those dark things do happen, we're blamed for not being careful. Mm. Um, so it's all of those things. Yeah, well, I was just thinking in that, like, that kind of complex answer and, like, deep answer that you're giving there is, you know, that is basically the experience of reading the poems is there is so much um, just in those two words, take care, the, all of those layers of um, yeah labor exploitation colonialism um, yeah safety of women all these things are kind of layered in there um, and yeah so that's what that's what listeners can expect if they do go out and buy your book I was wondering if we could um, talk about the first poem in the in the collection yeah. it's called Echolalia and I didn't know what that word meant when I read the poem so I looked it up um, and it's the repetition of speech by children learning to talk. Um, in the poem, there's lots of images of rising and sinking, and that kind of goes throughout the yeah. book, actually. Um, and then um, the the kind of process of sound becoming words um, and words becoming communication um, kind of is woven through those images, and it kind of culminates in this point when uh, you, the, the line, I want the no to petrify all movement. I was wondering if you could begin by talking about this poem um, and why it's the first in the collection. Sure. So um, I'll start off by saying, um, as someone whose first language is not English, I often look up words and um, and I often, you know, write the poem first and then find the title later, um, you know, the concept to match um, the rest of the poem. But uh, so about um, Echolalia, I wanted to be able to, uh, I think, with that poem, I've tried to situate two acts of violence alongside each other in a way that, not to make it coherent, but to say that these two acts of violence are related and they are kin. Um, the poem begins as uh, it came from my experience of, you know, diving. Uh, I was in Gaia Island. I was diving. And on the other side of the island, there were these dynamite explosions because the local fishermen were driven to desperation because of these very uh, exploitative global fishing industries. Um, the local fishermen are driven to desperation, so they, they resort to these, these very um, harmful uh, practices like throwing dynamite into the water and, and, um, and catching all the fish that are, that are maimed by, uh, by the explosions. And I remember being in such close proximity to that kind of violence. And then the poem sort of zooms in years in the future where an act of violence is done to me without my consent. And I wanted to put those two acts, you know, in conversation with each other. Um, I say, uh, you know, the line you mentioned, I want to know to petrify all movements. I often think of what 
the non-human communities that we coexist with would say to us if they could speak, and um, they would probably say no, 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 no. Mm. Um, and um, and I often think of the argument uh, against rape survivors, uh, you know, that because you didn't say no, that wasn't that isn't considered rape. So I just wanted to, to have this poem make that coherent, although that is not really the aim of much of my poems to make things coherent. It's just to put things in relationship to each other because I wanted to put the active assault in a larger conversation um, and situate it in in a narrative where it is it is related to capitalism and capitalist plunder and it is related to colonialism and extraction. So I wanted to put all of these things in conversation with each other. Yeah, thank you. Unfortunately, time is ticking away. I think we'll have time for one more question and then I'll maybe get you to read a poem. But um, the poems are set in a lot of different geographical locations and they're often named the locations as well as in specific places like in the water or in a Zoom meeting or in a whale. I'm wondering if you could talk about place in the collection. Yeah, so um, I think the collection roves around a lot, and I think that's a reflection of where I was um, physically and emotionally as I was writing it. So a lot of the poems are set in Ido Ido and the Philippines, where my family is from, um, as I was uh, there. Um, a lot of the poems are also just a reflection of how <laughs> how we all live on the internet, particularly during um, lockdown restrictions, um, where I was just having such vivid dreams of um, of being on the internet while I was sleeping. I don't know if you have those kinds of dreams too, um, Rosie, but like um, my dreams would just be filled with me being inside a Zoom meeting or or um, having these imaginary text conversations with people. I'm glad to say I haven't had dreams like that yet. <laughs> yeah, I feel like um, I, I feel like it's happening to so many people. Mm. Um, but I think the poems just throw around a lot and blend all of those online as well as physical landscapes because that's just a, re- a reflection of how I and a lot of us have been living during this time. Yeah, it felt also important to me, I guess, often... I don't know, not often, but sometimes poems are in are located somewhere but you can't quite locate where they are, but I felt like it was really important that these places were named and even if I didn't know where that place was or I'd never been to that place, somehow it felt grounded in that name naming process. Yeah, I mean like as a poet I al- I always have to think, you know, what do what kinds of information do I give and what do I withhold and mm. I think Naming locations like I think for me was an act of generosity because I wanted, I didn't want people to misunderstand the place, particularly as well when I say, when I say Filipino women, I mean Filipino women because I think um, I hate, I absolutely hate being misunderstood, which is why maybe I shouldn't be about <laughs> Um, but when I say Ibi-Ibo, I mean Ibi-Ibo. When I say Filipino women, I mean Filipino women because I don't want to be misunderstood or for it to be homogenized mm. as all women or Asian women or women of color when I don't mean that. Mm. 
Yeah, I think I think poetry is also a place of huge specificity as well, and that that really is reflected in your um, collection. I'm wondering now if you would mind reading us a short poem in the uh, minute or so that we have left. Okay, um, let me try to. Okay, because it's a short poem, let me. I'm gonna do a very short one. Um, this one is called Gundiman, and the senator orders every radio station broadcasting over the sea should air our music in Tagalog, so invaders know whose waters they're on. As if our love songs alone could thwart a battalion. Our serenades would lull night guards to sleep before the noise of extraction numbed them once more. I want to be there with a love song, not to wield as a weapon, but as a comfort to the water. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Eunice. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Rosie. That was a conversation with Eunice Andrada, a poet and educator, and we were talking about her new collection, Take Care. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast summer programming, and now we're going to go to a track. This one's Boomerang by the Marindas. <laughs>
on 3CR 855 AM or streaming live on 3cr.org.au and that track just there was Boomerang by the Marindas. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast Summer Programming. In 2021, the Thursday Breakfast crew conducted a series of interviews tracing the role of the arts in the gentrification and cultural history of Collingwood and Fitzroy. This was part of a collaborative project, Disorganising, coordinated by Liquid Architecture, Bus Projects and Westspace. In our interviews, you'll hear from local activists, artists, urban planners and historians, including Kutcher Edwards, John Harding, Poro Bibi and Izzy Brown, Kelly and Spike, Libby Porter, Dr Kate Shaw and Karen Cummings. Stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. My name is Libby Porter. I'm a Professor of Urban Studies at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University and I'm an uninvited guest currently living on Wurundjeri country in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Fantastic. So Libby, can you tell me a bit about yourself and what attracted you to researching urban planning and maybe also a bit about your connections to Wurundjeri country? For me, it's really about practising responsibility, I suppose, in the relationship between urban planning, urban development, thinking about the city, which is, I guess, what I ended up choosing for my career as my profession, trained in urban planning, and I, I kind of sit in a disciplinary sense between urban planning and urban geography. And early on in my research and my education, realised that here we are in a, in a settler colonial context talking about the relationships between people and place without any kind of historical grounding in the fact that these places have long been known as places for, you know, tens of thousands of generations known as places and governed as places, and yet we talk about it as if this has just been happening in the last, you know, 180 years or so, or 200 years or so. And that felt very problematic to me, because it is problematic, but I was really curious and uh, worried, I suppose, about the silence about that in my own disciplines of urban planning and, and urban geography. So that really drew me into a kind of trajectory of research and, and education that is engaging at that interface. What does it mean to be someone who is intervening through urban planning, urban policy, urban development on stolen land? How do we activate our responsibility in that regard? It's a really important consideration, thinking about urban planning on stolen land, because, of course, you know, this has been a process that's been ongoing since the first subdivision of Wurundjeri country, you know, the time of Hoddle, and thinking about the way that this is ongoing, right? Like this colonial terraforming of so-called Australia is an ongoing process. And so urban planning has to grapple with these concerns in an ongoing way as well. I couldn't have said it better. Um, that's exactly right. And yet we never talk about that. Well, certainly in the, the planning field, we haven't really talked about that. 
and it's only really emerging as a as something that we should be grappling with. And so there's, you know, in, in my way of thinking about it, there's been this kind of cult of denial that's really sat at the heart of urban thinking in Australia, if you like, whether that be sort of built environment, architectural practice, urban design practice, also urban planning and policy practice, or even just thinking about the city as a space of kind of vital life. And there's so much thinking and practicing of urban life in Australia, and that has at its core this cult of denial, a kind of insistent and systematic obscuring of the stolen nature of this land and the fact that when we're intervening and when we're building those lives, we're doing so on country and we're doing so at the expense of in extractive forms that are always denying what has always been here, which is, of course, First Peoples' Law. These questions really come to the fore when we talk about the sort of inner north of Melbourne and the city as well, this really intensely gentrified area, but which is also an area that is, as you said, it's been Wurundjeri country, it is Wurundjeri country, but also there's been processes of Aboriginal people building communities in these spaces from the 30s, 40s, 50s onwards, and then processes of transformation and change that have then led to displacement of Aboriginal communities again, so like a, a second level of displacement through gentrification. Exactly right. And I think it's helpful to maybe situate what we call now gentrification or urban displacement or class restructuring in cities in this kind of longer durée, if you like, of colonial relationships and colonisation as a process that's ongoing and as settler colonialism as a specific kind of colonial relation that exists in this kind of relentless, unending pursuit of its own futurity. So it's always... Settler colonialism is always creating itself into the future. It's always forecasting itself as belonging here and creating the conditions and you know, enabling possibilities of that to be true. And all of that is a violent disruption and dispossession of relations that were already here and that, of course, are still here. And, you know, I think that's really what we're grappling with in the urban professions is understanding what our responsibility is in that very difficult thorny kind of space yeah, and, and we're not very good at doing that actually <laughs> and we, we haven't built a vocabulary for it we haven't built a practice for it other than really problematic practices of co-optation and appropriation and white guilt and white fragility and all that kind of stuff and we we really need to work on that as a set of disciplines and practices and professions yeah and it makes me think of these ideas of um consultation and consent when it comes to development and design projects, especially in areas that are rapidly gentrifying. And I guess it makes me think about the sort of multidimensionality of, of communities within those spaces and the way that a settler colonial scarcity mindset sort of pits different kinds of communities against each other, whether it be migrant communities against Aboriginal communities creative communities against business enterprises. And I was wondering if you could maybe dig into some of the questions around urban planning and displacement, especially when it comes to these areas and who is differentially affected and the way that sort of government thinking and policymaking comes into play here. Those are great points, actually. I think you really nailed it there with that understanding of 
two is getting pitted against each other. And I think we always, certainly in much of the kind of urban development thinking, it, it's always about wins and losses. So who wins out of a particular kind of development and who gets marginalised? And you know, so much of the public conversation, if you like, around those things is sort of reduced to such simplistic aspects like, you know, should we retain the facade of the building or should it be heritage listed or these kinds of things and they become so stripped of, of kind of real content about what is actually going on here. So I think it sort of helps to position understanding any kind of place like the Collingwood Yards, for example in a much longer context of uneven development. So, you know, all cities, all spaces in cities, all spaces for that matter, all places go through and are linked into these sort of unending flows in a capitalist, colonialist regime that we have of a kind of uneven development. So ebbs and flows. So, at, you know, as you know, Collingwood was once um, in its post-invasion history a space of kind of abnegation, a space where, you know, people left that was relatively poor, for example, and it's kind of come back in the gentrifying kind of terms into something that's a higher class or um, being you know, remade for you know, artists and for hipsters and, and the bourgeoisie. So now we see you know, really high property and rents in the inner city and in the north in particular and all the usual kind of trappings of gentrifying places. So arts venues, for example, such as this one that we're discussing, as well as a whole lot of other both tangible and intangible kinds of changes in the urban landscape that signal this shifting, this kind of, in the gentrification language, a kind of class remake. But in a settler colonial context, there's these other elements of this. And I think it's really good that we're having a conversation about how to link those things together because the very categories of things that we use to describe things like uneven development or arts-based development or whatever it might be are fundamentally kind of colonialist categories, right? So, you know, even the category public and the idea of the Collingwood Yards as a public space or as activating public space, which is often the, the language that's used, is, you know, in a sort of essential category of settler urbanisation. So it's linked, for example, to its other side, the other side of that coin, which is private space. And public's always seen as an inherently good, fairly unproblematically inherently good thing. But what it does is then cast this kind of homogenous, unitary idea of what a public is. And it deliberately obscures, I think, that certain kinds of bodies and certain kinds of activities and uses and relationships are excluded from those kinds of public spaces. You know, we often see active exclusion of, for example, rough sleeping in public parks and bodies that are engaged in rough sleeping in public parks, even though those parks are notionally public. They're open to anyone to use them. So the very category of that requires this kind of denial of this underlying unceded sovereignty. The very idea of a public kind of obscures that notion that we're in that relationship. I think it's helpful to kind of get to grips with some of these underlying categories that are at work when we're, we're thinking about these kinds of precincts and spaces. It also made me think about the fact that there is so much hostile architecture around the Fitzroy Collingwood area now as well, that previously there had been a lot of people sleeping rough in the area. There are a couple of hostels and um, rooming houses that are in the area as well, and they've been around for a long time. But now with you know new sort of developments and the reinvigoration of those little bits of park spaces and street corners with particular kinds of seating, for example, that are broken up into one or two person blocks, um, mm. you can 
can see how this wouldn't be considered as much of the sort of like active displacement of communities, but it is a part of it, right? Oh, completely, yeah. And even though, you know, this particular site might not be, you know, obviously a site of gentrification, if you like, in the sense that at least in the in its most recent iteration of use, um, there weren't people living there. But it's all part of the wider package of how urban space is restructured, always in the interests of extractive capital accumulation and of those settler futurities that I mentioned before. So always recreating the city in the image of what we expect the settler colonial city to continue to look like into the future that upholds effectively a white supremacist logic of owning space and being able to extract wealth from that space. Um, and I think all of the things that you just mentioned around, you know, hostile architectures and, you know, those very subtle but quite material forms of exclusion are a part of those kinds of packages of, of doing that work. That also kind of links into this circular relationship between property development and the idea of capital generation in these gentrifying areas and philanthropy as well and this idea of corporate social responsibility and selective reinvestment that then feeds back into these processes of gentrification. So development companies can be buying out warehouse spaces in the area for redevelopment as luxury apartments, but then can also be putting some money into creating arts projects or supporting arts projects, but they're sort of two sides of the same process. Entirely two sides of the same process. We're kind of like the nice face of, of that capitalist extractive kind of logic um, that goes on there. And, and that's not to say, you know, some of the things that go on are, you know, not... They're all bad, I suppose, and you know, the Collingwood Yards is potentially a you know, kind of good space for those reasons. Um, you know, we need low-cost art and cultural production spaces in cities. Of, of course we do. I guess the question then is, you know, well, what gets counted as a cultural practice? What gets counted as the arts? What gets put in the centre of conversations about what will come to be valued in a sort of social value sense about what gets to be present and what gets excluded or marginalised or obscured. I think those are kind of big questions that often don't get asked because we assume that when we talk about public space or cultural production space, we're always talking about something intrinsically good um, without getting to grips with but what else is going on at the edges of that and its core, really, about what kinds of people get held up as possible and normatively right in that space and who doesn't get to do that. So I think that's kind of this wider structural program of, of, you know, what we would broadly call gentrification, but I think is actually something much more fundamental that's going on, much more profound that's going on actually in a, in a city like Melbourne, you know, a city that's largely built on Wurundjeri land that never speaks of itself as being in relationship to Wurundjeri country and the people of country. It makes me also think about what it means to develop or to market a, a cultural space or the or the reinvention of a cultural space within a suburb like Collingwood, where you are situated between you know several areas of public housing as well, and what it means for state actors, industry actors to then selectively invest in particular things. But at the same time, you know we see public housing falling apart. So thinking about um, what it means to have low-rent spaces for artists in an area where there's also public housing and people are being sort of disincentivized to stay there. Look, there's so much to say about these kind of ebbs and flows of this stuff, but one thing to think about is this kind of wider restructuring that I've already spoken about and seeing all of those things as interconnected in that 
sort of package of things. So the sustained and strategic disinvestment in public housing that we know to be true across Australia and indeed across the world in, in most instances is part of that intensely colonial package of recreating certain kinds of spaces as ripe for renewed investment and wealth extraction and those very extractive logics that we know are at work. And then the arts space side of it is kind of just another angle, on, like another face of that particular, I don't know, maybe it's a hexagon <laughs> um, <laughs> kind of shape that is projecting a, a kind of cultural facade, if you like, in some instances, sometimes with quite a lot of depth, you know, it's not just a facade sitting behind it, but is part of that package of the restructuring of urban space. I think it's an interesting paradox that we can talk about the need for, say, low-cost art and cultural production space in an area like Collingwood and Fitzroy and not at the same time be talking about but where will people live and who will live there because it's quite possible that a lot of those cultural producers can't afford to live in Collingwood or Fitzroy because it's so expensive. And as you say, meanwhile down the road and round the corner, there are sites of public housing that are being actively disinvested by the state in order to then make them renewable. And that will occur, of course, in the forms of extractive capitalist logic that come to bear on those. So they, they get flogged off in public-private partnerships and we sell the land and we get private developers in to you know, redevelop something that looks a little bit better than we think the high-rise towers look like, for example. And those kinds of logics really come to bear in, in those places. They're all part of that package of this wider extraction of wealth from, from urban space from Wurundjeri country. Mm, and what you brought up about the cultural facade, I mean, it's probably not worth digging too much into that metaphor because, as you said, there is value in these artistic spaces. But at the same time, it makes me think about the analogy with keeping up the heritage facade of the Collingwood Technical School and then sort of gutting the inside and uh, redeveloping it as this cultural space, which brings me back to thinking about these ideas of, of what counts as heritage and what is preserved. And this sort of time period from the 1950s onwards which doesn't really seem to get captured within discussions around heritage, but there's obviously a huge amount of cultural production that has occurred in the Fitzroy-Collingwood area during that time. Yeah, yeah, in that kind of modernist era of heritage. Yeah, completely right. And I mean, it really shows us with a kind of bright shining light on it what we value as heritage, right? So we, you know, the, the idea that we would preserve a historic or supposedly historic facade of a building is often the sort of reduced logic of how heritage comes into, say, planning decisions or urban development and, and design decisions for that matter. So they become part of the ways that developers think about how should we manage this site, how should we redevelop this site. And I think they're interesting. I mean, you know, no doubt there are some great buildings and we should preserve them. I'm not suggesting that that shouldn't be true. It's, I think it's just interesting and important to engage with what that tells us about the aspects of social life and urban life that we value as heritage that we can categorise as heritage. So I'm struck, for example, by the complete dissonance between the destruction of the jabberung trees down near Ararat because they're not apparently heritage counted in the logic of you know, urban development and yet we might list the Eastern Freeway in the same breath as a heritage-listed piece of infrastructure or built form because it has some kind of heritage value that we can you know, hold up and say this is historic. 
I think that shows us really keenly, really sharply, what's in view as heritage and what isn't. And similarly, in some of the older buildings in the inner areas of Melbourne, they have heritage facades, yes, they do. Um, they become these kind of polished-up, trendy places for different kinds of uses, whether that be cultural production, sometimes housing, of course, often high-value housing, but at the expense of what? At the expense of other stories that are obscured from view, other forms of heritage, other practices of heritage and history that are sort of denied access to those places. And literally, people being displaced around the neighbourhood as that increases the rents and the property values in the area and that pushes people out whether by just what some people would describe as natural processes of the market which are of course not natural at all or whether it be through those kind of much more strategic interventions um, a sort of state-led renewal where the state comes in and says no all you people need to move and we're going to relocate you somewhere else in order to remake this space in a different kind of image. That idea of dissonance that you're talking about also makes me think of what it might mean to curate a community arts precinct while not necessarily grappling fully with the concept of a community and the way that communities feed into and make possible these creative practices that then become the basis upon which these sites are developed. So I think it raises some really interesting questions about the conception of community when it comes to the work of Creative Victoria, for example. Mm. I think it's a really important thing to think about around this kind of curation of communities. Now, I mean, the urban planning field is replete with sort of saturated with examples of where the planning intervention has attempted to create community or identified a lack of community as a reason for a sort of state intervention and often that's to do with stigmatizing something like public housing for example which is oh you know this is a community that's falling apart and we know that because the buildings are falling apart and of course then they never actually mention the fact that that's on them because they haven't sustained their buildings <laughs> maintained their buildings properly but this logic always assumes that you can be from the physical environment what the social context looks like. And so certain kinds of communities become sort of stigmatised and ghettoised in this kind of discourse around what constitutes a proper community when inside those, say, those public housing towers down the road is a vibrant community. We saw it in action in the hard lockdowns in Flemington and, and North Melbourne, right? We saw that right in front of us. If for, for those who didn't know it was there, it was being actioned right in front of us. It was, in fact, what saved many of those people in those buildings was that existing community that is always the subject of kind of disavowal and, and attempted obscuring uh, by planning processes and urban policy processes that always want to say, no, that's not really community. We need to create a community here. And the way we do that is that we bring in, say, perhaps cultural practices or precincts. We might need to bring in more social mix. This is a big feature of the kind of social mix agenda is that, you know, you need to have this kind of socially mixed type of neighbourhood. Now, we have socially mixed neighbourhoods throughout Melbourne in, in many respects. Most of the ghettos, I would argue, in Melbourne are actually rich. They're places where no one else can get in because you can't afford it. So we might need to socially mix um, some of those neighbourhoods, I think. But what happens, in fact, is that the neighbourhoods that are the poorer neighbourhoods are kind of marked with this discourse of not being sufficiently community-like and have to get renewed and redeveloped. That's, that's the kind of discourse that's put forward. And I think that's really part and parcel of this whole restructuring agenda.
Yeah, I, I think, you know, we can't really consider Collingwood Yards to have opened up properly last year because nobody could really go there. But looking at how it develops as a space over time, who the tenants are, the sort of turnover of tenants, whether people feel comfortable to stay in that space, whether people are able to build vibrant communities there and link in with communities that already exist, I think remains to be seen. And so this is a really interesting time to have this conversation as well. Completely. And, you know, those very simple things of observing and taking note and really reflecting on who uses a space is at least a first point or a first step in really examining does this space work in the form in which we said that we would like it to work? Like, is it really inclusionary? Are, you know, a diverse range of people, and I don't mean just diverse as in there are both artists and, you know, blue-collar workers or something, or people who work in the shops around the corner using the space. I mean really diverse, with diverse practices that really express the full range of kind of human relationality and social relationships that we know exist in urban spaces and that should have a place. That's really the kind of first benchmark or litmus test of whether that's working properly or whether it's just serving yet another class remake, the class restructure of, a, of an urban space. Um, so now we're going to go to a track. This is Milkamana by King Stingray.
You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast, summer programming, and that track there was Milk Amana by King Stingray. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and I'm about to speak with George Cangere, who represents the newly formed Save Preston Market Action Group. And George joins us to discuss the fight to save Preston Market from aggressive redevelopment that's been proposed by the Victorian Planning Authority. So good morning, George. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Priya. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Um, So could you start out by telling us a bit about the history and significance of Preston Market to the local community? Yeah, so Preston Market's about 50 years old in the middle of Preston. Um, I imagine a lot of your viewers would have already been there, but it's it's a really uh, big open-air market. People sell lots of fruit and vegetables and things um, and, you know, fresh meat and fish and things like that. Um, And it's just a really – it's an amazing – place which really represents the sort of uh, the, the working class history and migrant history of the northern suburbs. Um, and it still represents that. Like, it's an amazing place to go and just, um, and just uh, you know, experience and, and hang out. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's very important for the, uh, in terms of like the affordability of the food is another very important thing about it. It's uh, the prices at the market, are, you know, they're pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think like, it's it's hard to it's hard to undersell Preston Market. I, as as somebody who also lives in the local area, Preston Market is awesome, um, and it yeah. is just such a such a hub as well for connection um, in the community, especially for older folks who who go shopping in the market too. Absolutely, it's it's really you can see that it's sort of this um, important place for people, just in terms of just yeah, like somewhere to go. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, when was this redevelopment of the area first proposed and what is being planned for the market site by the Victorian Planning Authority? Yeah, so um, the redevelopment's been on the cards for um, quite some time um, because the site uh, is privately owned. So the the entire time that the Preston Market's been there, the site itself has been privately owned, but the market has grown into this sort of um, uh, organic sort of community, the core of the area, basically. Um, but they've, in the past few years, uh, Salter, which is the um, the corporation which um, wants to redevelop the market, presented a new. About five years ago, they presented a, a plan which included 28-story um, uh, high rises and things like that. So just things which, if any, if if for anyone who doesn't know, Preston's largely a very flat area. Mm. Um, if you had a 28-story high rise in the middle of Preston, that it, it would literally look like a it would just be such an incredible eyesore and change to the whole thing. And um, since then, there's been a bit of a dispute. The Save the, Save the Preston um, Market group and a sort of a, a version of it was there at, the, at that time to mm. sort of oppose that sort of thing. And then um, as the, the Victorian Planning Authority's plans have started to come out for the site, uh, the group has sort of reformed to, to contest what's planned now. What's planned now is... Um, at least three multi-storey buildings, the tallest of which is going to be 20 storeys, and they're going to knock down up to 80% of the market um, and retain some, pardon me, retain some um, token sort of area of the market, essentially, uh, but largely just redevelop the entire area with um, 2,000 new apartments and up to 6,000 new residents. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is yeah. a massive proposed change, you know. Um, yeah. There, there's definitely 
I guess, like a need for appreciation of the the scale of this transformation. Um, and I'm wondering what the response has been from community members, because I also understand that the Darabin Council has undertaken stakeholder engagement to prepare a report on community views on the market and plan redevelopment, which is called the heart of Preston. Um, and so to what extent has the VPA actually taken priorities outlined within that report into account? Yeah, so they've been, I mean, uh, it's not surprising, they've been very sort of um, silk-tongued, basically, in their the way that they've They've uh, taken on board people's wish for the, you know, for the preservation of the market. Um, so the the council the council's um, current position is that the market should be um, sort of uh, retained um, as it is essentially as a sort of very important historical and cultural kind of place. Um, but. Uh, the VPA is essentially saying, oh, well, we're going to knock down most of it and we'll sort of, we'll keep this area, we'll rebuild some of it, but it's all really just, um, it's all really just window dressing. And the, the consultation processes are, I mean, really they're, they're a process in manufacturing consent because they don't sit down and ask the community, what should we do with this, this the heart of our community? What should we do to make it better? They sit down and say, right, we're going to redevelop the area and... So what would you like us to possibly include? And then mm. they report that as the community saying, oh, the community said they wanted this and that. The community has never really asked what we want to happen um, with Preston Market. We're just asked um, for some sort of fringe suggestions, uh, which, uh, you know, just only, you know, they're just marginal to the essential thing, which is that this corporation stands to make, you know, approximately a billion dollars we've calculated. Mm. out of this redevelopment, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think, like, um, from from having a, a very brief read of the VPA document as well and also um, the heart of Preston um, report, uh-huh. it seems like uh, there's been a sort of selective uptake of the sentiment of the heart of Preston report without actually also taking into account the practical concerns around the physical space. Um, yeah. So, you know, we need to retain some sort of community space, but the nature of that space can obviously vary drastically. Absolutely, and it also doesn't consider that this, whatever happens, however sort of tastely they decide to knock down Preston Market and, uh, you know, and rebuild some of it or whatever, um, this is going to have a massive impact on the just the general process of gentrification in the area. Mm-hmm. Because once this happens, um, you know, when you're in the area, you can really see that this market sort of is a very key kind of... Um, aspect to holding the area together and once that's made into a multi-story sort of um, area with I think they're proposing things like cinemas there and um, you know it's just going to be it's going to change the whole area uh, irrevocably and it'll change things for well not only residents who um, because I I can't imagine the the sort of the conditions on the prices of the market are going to remain the same Um, you know the price of food's going to go up probably the uh, you know rent of nearby shops is probably going to go up, you know, mm. you know the, the general process of gentrification, I think, is going to really kick off. Yeah. I mean, we don't need cinemas there. We got Northland, mate. But, um, <laughs> I know. Uh, Literally down the road. Exactly. You know? um, so yeah. we need to um, wrap up in a moment, but um, could you Absolutely. just um, take us through uh, where people can find out more and support this fight to save Preston Market? Yes. So, yeah, uh, 
we're um, part of the Save the Preston Market Action Group. You can go and find us at um, www.savetheprestonmarket.com and put your details down. Um, we're a group which is saying absolutely not to the destruction of the Preston Market, and we are demanding that the um, the council work with the state government to compulsorily acquire the site because that's the only way that this um, you know this fundamental community area is going to be protected. Um, and we will really have to fight hard for it, um, just like people have had to fight hard for other things like Victoria Market, for instance, in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you so much for for the work that you and others are doing to save the Preston Market. Um, We support your fight and encourage people to go uh, to Save the Preston Market Action Group's page um, and find out more, figure out what you can do. So thank you so much, George. Thanks so much, Bria. Thanks for having me. And that was a conversation with George Cangere, who is a member of Save Preston Market Action Group. And George joined us to discuss the fight to save Preston Market from pretty aggressive redevelopment plans proposed by the Victorian Planning Authority. That's all we have time for on 3CR Thursday Breakfast this morning. Thanks for joining us and make sure you stay tuned to 3CR 855 AM all summer long. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.